this week as we continue our study through 1 John, it's good for us to, to recap what we've learned so far as we prepare again to worship our Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word. This morning's title is Awaiting the Anointed, and just the title should help us recap a bit. Last week, we, we took a look at a, a verse in Daniel chapter 9 where we, we identified who this anointed one is, and it's him that we proclaim week after week. We saw that this anointed one would come to put an end to transgression, to atone for iniquity, and to reign in everlasting righteousness. We also saw that this anointed one was one who would be cut off, and he was. He laid down his life to ransom sinners, that we might have right, the right to become children of God. And so we identified, just looking at this title, who the anointed is. The anointed is Christ Jesus. But as we move through this week's text, we'll understand that there's also others who are anointed, and that's us as believers we looked at the threefold application of, of what the anointing looked like as we saw how David was a type of Christ, and Christ shared that anointing with us. We saw, first of all, the sovereign election that's indicated through that anointing. And we saw the purposeful consecration set aside for God's purposes. And thirdly, we saw that the anointing of the anointed one is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So with these three things in mind, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, the anointed. And we're talking about Jesus, the anointed, giving us an anointing. I jokingly said last week that we are not awaiting the anointing. The anointing has already happened. And this week, we'll not only be looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but we'll also be understanding the third person of the Trinity, looking at the Holy Spirit, him himself being our anointing. And that anointing being a part of what Christ has for us as we await his second advent. So as we await the anointed, we will contemplate the anointing that we've received. I would invite you to stand to your feet as we read 1 John. We'll start at chapter 2, verse 18, where we were last week, and read through verse 3 of chapter 3. Beginning at verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write to you these things, to, 
I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin by asking this abiding Holy Spirit to make this clear to us this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you knowing that we have full access to you because of the finished work of of the Son. We also come to you this morning recognizing that we have been filled with your Holy Spirit and we are needful of that filling. God, we ask as forgiven sinners this morning that you would allow the Holy Spirit to, to quiet our hearts and minds and to be receptive to what your word has to teach us. Father, we pray that as your word is preached, that for those who may not know you, that even now the Holy Spirit would begin a work of drawing sinners to repentance. It is for this reason that you came. It is for this reason that we are awaiting your your coming, that we would continue to be a church faithfully living in the, the time of gospel proclamation. We ask that all of the things that we consider and that go through our minds this morning would indeed be worship to you. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll be picking up this week at uh, verse 26. We're moving through and we're understanding that as John gives us an assurance of our salvation through Christ Jesus, he's also going to tell us some of the ways that we know we can have assurance. And one of those is through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning we'll be taking a, a crash course on who is the Holy Spirit and what is it the Holy Spirit does in the life of us as believers as we await the return of Jesus Christ. So we'll go through and there'll be three or maybe even four things that we'll identify about the Holy Spirit. There are theologians who have spent a lifetime understanding what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit, and so this won't be complete, but we'll have some glimpse of how it is that God in his grace has given us assurance as believers through the work of the Holy Spirit. Beginning at verse 26, we see John continuing a theme of, of warning us. He tells us that he's warning us as awaiting believers of some dangers. First John chapter two, verse 26 says, "I write you these things, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you." So John gives us this purpose statement that he's said various times throughout this letter. 
We saw 1 John 5.13 that says, we've been written these things so that we would have assurance of eternal life. But John also tells us that he's writing these instructions to warn us. He warned us about the world. He's warned us about our, our adversaries, the, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And, and specifically, we saw last week, back at verse 18, we saw John saying, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. John is providing a, a warning to us that during this period of time that we're waiting this second coming of Christ Jesus, we have to be aware of false teaching and false teachers. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is a part of helping us identify counterfeits, false teaching. And so John calls this out again, and he's, he's reminding us that because of our knowledge of Jesus Christ and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can spot false teaching. False teaching is, is anything that adds to or takes away from the message of who Jesus Christ is. We're told specifically that the Antichrist, in, in John's letter here, that the Antichrist is one who denies the Father. It says, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Who can, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We're told in chapter 4 that anyone that denies that Jesus came in bodily form, this also is an Antichrist. And we need to be aware that the adversary, the false teachers, can easily slip in Jesus, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Some of us saw last week a very dramatic unfolding of Super Bowl ads that says, Jesus, he gets us. And praise God for some open doors, for some opportunities. And, and in fact, there is some very clear biblical support for that statement. Jesus gets us. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we're told that we have a high priest that sympathizes with us. But it's not enough to just say that he's a high priest that sympathizes with us. He's a sinless high priest. He's a perfect high priest. Now, the, the ad would have come across slightly differently if we would have let out with John 5.22 that tells us that Jesus is a judge. But that's important because we can't understand that Jesus is our defense attorney unless we also understand that Jesus is our judge. If we go to John chapter 3, verse 16 the football fans know that this one's been on poster boards since football was a thing, right? And, and John 3.16, we know it and we love to share this one. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is in full accord with what John tells us in 1 John, right? And, and you know, you don't see verse 17 very often, but we could put this one on a poster board too. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But verse 18, we'll probably never see at a football game. Look at verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Jesus that indeed was sent by the Father to rescue sinners. And he's the only way. Lots of ways to get it wrong and only one to get it right. And the Holy Spirit in the life of the, the believer helps us identify the Christ of the Bible. We see those things and we test them in light of Scripture. 
as we make notes this morning of, of different things that the Holy Spirit does, I, I want to point out to you 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. If you'd like to turn there, I don't have it on the slide. We have a, a slide that has a couple of different statements of what the Holy Spirit does. It's not a complete list, as I mentioned. But 1 Timothy, as Paul writes to Timothy and those at the church in Ephesus, he warns of false teachers. And look what verse 1 of chapter 4 says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And Paul goes on to describe what that particular flavor of false teaching is. But look, the Spirit expressly says in later times. Are we in later times, church? Yes, we saw that last week as we, we looked through Christ's words in Matthew chapter 24, and we understand that we are in a time of gospel proclamation. And as we wait his return, we must be aware of false teachers. But we're not left defenseless because we've been given this Holy Spirit that expressly allows us to spot false teachers. What do we do with that? Well, while we are waiting we have some responsibilities as it pertains to these false teachings. The first thing is, if we come alongside someone who has been led astray by a false teaching, we help them out. We pray for them and we correct them with the word of God. We know that God says of his word that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? But if we come across somebody who is doing false teaching and they're not corrected, what do we do? We call them out. As a, as a church, this has been a practice that we've done before, and for some it's made uncomfortable, but there's a very clear biblical basis for calling out false teaching. Paul does this both in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. He refers to a, a guy named Hymenaeus, and also along with him, Alexander and Philetus, and he makes it clear that he's calling out these false teachers. So when we see John's statement here, and he says, I write you these things about those who are trying to deceive you. No doubt, John's readers had people in mind. They're being called out. And I should mention that the following step, after trying to help someone out who's falling prey to false teaching, and, and naming them out is showing them out. Okay? And that's a gentle way of saying um, kicking them out. Okay? These are things that the church must do as we wait Christ's return. And we must faithfully preach the word of God. Now, moving on to, to verse 27, because now we get to, to behold this helper, this Holy Spirit that we've been anointed with. Verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as has taught you, abide in him. Now, this is an incredible statement to unpack. First of all, we know from what we saw last week, who have we been anointed by? The Holy One. We've been anointed by Christ. That's not a, an ordinary anointing. We're ordinary believers, but we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we've been anointed by, by God. Not by some teacher claiming something new, claiming something that contradicts what Jesus said, but by one who affirms every single word that Christ spoke to us. But this anointing is, is unique. It says, the anointing that you received from him, referring to Christ, abides in you. 
abides in you. Think about this for a second. The, the act of anointing, it's, it's topical in nature, right? You put some, some oil on, right? You, we have the verse that we think of as Aaron is a, anointed and the oil flows down his beard. Or we see an anointing where the an ointment was placed on Jesus' head. It's topical. But the type of anointing that we're talking about here is internal. And it's not just a, a one-time procedure like regeneration, but it's followed by an indwelling, a residential care program, if you will. This is the Holy Spirit living inside you. And all of this is needful as we await residing with God. That's what the believer awaits, right? We await for eternity. In the meantime, he's come to us. He came to us first and foremost in physical form, the God-man, and gave his life. As he laid down his life and he, he then took it up again, he then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Think for a moment about the disciples after Christ's resurrection and before his ascension. What were they waiting for? What were they doing? They were hidden away in a locked room. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to the Father and I'm sending you a helper. And this helper isn't just going to help you out in those tight spots. This helper is going to live inside of you to abide in us. And then he goes on to say, and you have no need that anyone should teach you just as his anointing teaches you about everything. There's a couple of things I want to point out before we move past this verse. We should ruminate on this verse for a very long time, like maybe until he comes again. Okay? So we don't have that much time this morning, but what I want to show you is that another translation, the Legacy Standard Version, does an amazing job of explaining this verse to us by pointing out that this Holy Spirit is personal. The translation says, and as for you, the anointing whom you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. This, who, this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is a, a portion of God's Spirit dwelling in us. And this teaches us. While keeping your finger firmly in 1 John chapter 2, would you turn with me to John chapter 14? As we see this, this resident abiding Holy Spirit, beginning at verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible? This is the spirit of truth that dwells within us. Not everyone gets to know him. Just the ordinary Christian. Just the ordinary man or woman who follows after Jesus Christ and has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. If we flip a, a couple verses over in that same chapter, John chapter 14, starting at verse 25, Jesus further explains what this residing, abiding spirit does. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Jesus told us, look, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this is what you're supposed to hope for. And this is what you're supposed to long for. But in the meantime, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you with a helper. Curiously, the word helper there is paraclete, which is the, the same word that John uses to describe Jesus as our defense attorney, as our advocate. This is the helping work of the Holy Spirit, just as we have the helping work of the Son. Until such time that we see him as he is. So as we move through the the things that the Holy Spirit does, we've caught that he he warns us. He helps us spot counterfeits. He also teaches us. He's our our residential teacher that is inside of our hearts, and he helps us bring to mind everything that Jesus has taught us. He helps us bring to remembrance in those moments when we most need it, the word of God. As we considered this morning the the notion of anxiety and the things that we struggle with, isn't it remarkable that in those times of anxiety and those times of despair, the word of God comes to mind? And that's not because you've memorized something. That's because you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings that to mind at just the right moment. That's his grace to us. Back to 1 John 2.27 But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. This statement, this statement should help us understand just a bit about this whole waiting thing. You see, throughout all of the Old Testament, the prophets pointed to the fact that the new covenant was coming, a new covenant different from the other covenants. And we look at Jeremiah chapter 31, and we know that no one will have need of their neighbor to teach them, that God himself will be their teacher. And so this Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of all of those promises. We have in the the book of Joel, we saw last week, that their young men and their young women would, would be taught through the Holy Spirit. Praise God. So he teaches us. We, we waited for that. And we see in, in Acts, the first indwelling of those, those believers, the Holy Spirit coming. Verse 27 goes on, But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So now this is getting confusing, right? So the Holy Spirit dwells in us in order that we may dwell or abide in Christ. Of course, we all know well the verse about Jesus being the vine and us being the branches. We're to abide in him so that we can produce fruit, produce the fruit of repentance, produce the fruit of righteousness. The Holy Spirit enables us to stay plugged into the vine. Left to ourselves, impossible to produce that fruit. One other thing before we move on to verse 28 that that I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit, and that is that the Holy Spirit seals us in earnest. We saw this together when we studied Ephesians, and it's worth flipping to that beautiful epistle together. Ephesians chapter 1, start at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. See, this is an a indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is a, a seal, it's a promise, it's in earnest. If we knew a mortgage guy, we could ask a little bit about what earnest means, but it's, in, in our context, it's a partial payment that guarantees that the rest of the transaction is going to be completed. That Holy Spirit dwelling in us is a promise that the rest of the transaction of us being adopted as sons, of us receiving an eternal inheritance, is sure. There is no question. Christ did it all. While we are waiting for the, the not yet, he sealed us in earnest. And that helps us understand verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2 just a bit better. John says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame in his coming. Saw a slightly irreverent bumper sticker the other day. Perhaps some of you have seen this before. And the bumper sticker says, Jesus is coming, look busy. Anybody seen that one? As I, as I pondered that and I look at this verse, what are we supposed to be busy doing? We are supposed to be busy becoming holy. So that's the subtitle for the message this morning, right? It's awaiting the anointed, being busy, becoming holy. That's what God has sealed us for. That's the purpose. So as John lays this out, he says, and now little children, abide in him. That is, abide in Christ. Produce fruit through Christ. So that when he appears, now this word appears is a unusual word that doesn't happen a whole lot of times in the New Testament Greek. It happens only in relationship to God the Son. We see this word epiphany. It's actually translated epiphany for those of you who recall what we went through as we contemplated Christ's first advent. It's what the word is used to describe the angels as they appeared before the shepherds. It's an epiphany. It's a sudden, incredible, awe-inspiring appearance. And that's what John is pointing to. He's saying, when he appears, and of course, John saw him appear the first time. What he's talking about now is the second appearance. What the church is awaiting, the, the gospel realization. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame, in shame at his coming. Now again, a little bit of uh, Greek studying. The word confidence is parousia, and the word coming is parousia. So John's using a play on words where confidence and coming are like almost rhyming types of words, right? So he's being very poetic in what he's saying. And he's saying, when Jesus comes back, may you have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. May you not be ashamed. Might you be so assured of your salvation that you're living like that, that you're waiting Christ's second return. Now, there's lots of different perspectives on what this means as we understand it in light of the assurance of our salvation. Some preachers might say that we, 
as believers need to understand that when Christ comes again, all of the things that we have done will be subject to judgment. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 makes that clear. It says, when the day of the Lord comes, everything that we built will be tried as with fire. Only that which is gold or silver will endure. What's wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away. But 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, but he himself will be saved, right? So one perspective is, okay, well, as Christians, you know, we can get away with a lot. When Jesus comes, we have the assurance of our salvation, but what we're doing really isn't that relevant. But, but I would argue in light of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, if you'd turn there with me, that what John is really saying is that a true believer is going to live in such a way that they are prepared for Christ's second coming. It's not even a question we should be asking. We should be understanding that we do have an assurance of salvation and that we should live in light of that. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, so what do we see there? The coming one. That coming one, the anointed one, the holy one, he's coming. And when he comes, the righteous, who are the righteous? Those who have been bought through the righteousness of Christ. They, they won't shrink back. And if they do, God will find no pleasure in them. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So as John gives us this test of assurance of our salvation, the true believer of Jesus Christ is awaiting longingly with anticipation the coming one. And their conduct should look like that. Church, do we just think about the worries of today and maybe the troubles of tomorrow? Or do we really truly live with eternity in view? That which is seen is temporary. That which is unseen is eternal. What John's trying to tell us here is that we have eternity in view and we live in such a way that when he comes, we'll have no reason to be ashamed. Moving on to verse 29, back at our key text, 1 John chapter 2, moving towards chapter, chapter 3 here. We have a statement that really will help us understand the, the coming weeks as we continue to move through this precious letter. John says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Wow. Who is righteous? What does the Bible tell us? No one. No one is righteous. And when we preach the, the word of God and we proclaim what Christianity is all about, the part about being born again is, is critical to understanding the righteousness piece. Like, we can't sanctify ourselves without first having his righteousness. First, whose righteousness? Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. This was when we, we tried to memorize together. Some of us might still have it. We'll see if the Holy Spirit will help us bring it to mind. Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, it was his righteousness that now allows us to produce righteousness. If we look at that verse together, it says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The word practice, we'll see um, many times next week. And that idea is actually one of produces. So if you swap that out for a minute and you use the word produces, it said, you may be sure that everyone who produces righteousness has been born of him. So apart from him, can we produce righteousness? We can produce something that might look like righteousness, but we, we don't preach morality. We preach Christ. A quote I would share with you from Martin Lloyd-Jones on the topic of sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us is this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must always be careful to define sanctification not only in terms of our moral state and condition, but of our moral state and condition in relationship to God. That is absolutely vital. People can be highly moral, but that does not mean that they are sanctified. The word must always carry with it this conception of our reality, of our relationship to God, and our standing in his presence. So sanctification is not morality and purity in and of itself. It is all this in relationship to God. Therefore, it is an essential difference between the best moral person that the world may put forward and the Christian who is being sanctified. So, church, that has to influence our understanding of how we present our faith. Is our faith about ridding the world of sin? No. Our faith is about proclaiming what Christ has done for us and his work and, and giving us new birth. And, and before I go on, I, I want to share a personal experience, just having watched the Holy Spirit during some time overseas um, in, in Honduras. We had a, a man and his uh, girlfriend they were living together, which the Bible explicitly clear, clarifies that living together outside of marriage is, is a sin. And that made some folks uncomfortable. But we decided that we would faithfully preach the word of God, that we would invite him to be a part of a Bible study, and that we would preach Christ. We would preach to him what Christ had done on his behalf. And I'll never forget one afternoon, he came to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm going to miss Bible study next week okay. He's like, I, I need to go travel a few hours to, to go get some paperwork in order because I got to get married. I, I got to make things right before God. I have to correct this standing that I have before God because I'm supposed to be righteous like he is. And you know what? We didn't ever call him out on that. We didn't ever go to correct that symptom of his problem. We wanted him to know the solution to his problem, which is Christ, is his righteousness. As we understand what's being said here, everyone who practices or produces righteousness has been born of God. Let's talk about this born of God thing for just a minute. We, can we go back to John chapter 3? We've been there once this morning. Let's go back again. We have a, a guy who would appear to have been righteous beginning in the, the first portion of this chapter, back at verse 1, we've got the Pharisee that followed all the rules. We'll begin at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The Spirit blows, the wind blows where it wishes, and you can hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus struggled to understand, I've already been born in a human state. I have a mother and a father, and I was born into this world. What do you mean born again? And Jesus explains, must be born of the Spirit. You must be regenerated and washed by the Holy Spirit and made new. And in that being born again, the anointing from the anointed one. Born again. Let's go to the third chapter. We're making our way through this precious book. Third chapter of 1 John, from John 3 to 1 John 3, right? And John begins this chapter with an incredible, incredible verse. Look what he says. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, I can't possibly yell loudly enough to explain the excitement that would have been in what John was saying here. Other translations say, behold, see, look. And then the statement that follows this, it says, what, see what kind of love. Another Greek word, potamen, it uh, probably is pronounced wrong, and that's okay. But it's a word that only shows up six times in the Bible. And the other time that it shows up is when the disciples wake up. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus calms the storm. And they say, using the same word, what kind of man is this that the wind and the sea obey? Okay, that's the kind of exclamation. This Greek word means this is unseen. We've never seen anything like this. This is new. This is novel. And so when John starts out with that word, he would have had the attention of every single one of his readers or listeners. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And, and this kind of love is what John is using to, to give them a clear assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Now, this isn't the first time that John has used children or little children or young men or fathers. He's used these very carrying terms throughout this letter, but this is the first time that he tells us very specifically that we are children of who? Of God. We are born of God. We are adopted of God. 1 John chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's in the context of him giving us the Holy Spirit to assure us that, in fact, our adoption is imminent. We will be called children of God. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. But think about this born thing for a second, okay? So the verse tells us before that everyone who produces righteousness has been born of him. Nicodemus rightly points out that everyone is born of an earthly father and an earthly mother. And Galatians there tells us that Jesus was sent forth as a son born of a woman and born under the law. But how was Jesus conceived? Conceived of whom? Of the Holy Spirit. Isn't this incredible? Like, we share so much with Christ. Christ, born of of a virgin, born in a way that seems ordinary, but conceived of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he's not of the line of Adam, not of the one who introduced sin into the human race. He was holy. He was perfect. He was set apart, the Lamb of God. And it's because of of his blood, of his sufficient sacrifice, that now we have the right to become adopted as sons. Think about this adoption thing for just a moment. When we think about adoption, we, we think of Jesus adopting us and we're like cute little babies in the cabbage patch and he comes and adopts us and picks us up. But think for just a moment about the juvenile de- detention center around the corner. Who goes to, to pick up a juvenile delinquent with a rap sheet and says, you know what, I think I'll adopt this one? Unbelievable, unthinkable. So when we see what kind of love the Father has had for us, think of the state that we are in when he adopted us. John Calvin said, even because God began to love us freely, we deserved hatred instead of love. All the things that we know about about Christ's love deserve incredible exclamation because we we know what we were. And now, because of this this statement that's being made, we know what we are now. What What were we? We were enemies. What are we now? Adopted sons and daughters. But we can't leave out that part of the reason John writes to us this, in this way, and, and the reason the Holy Spirit was sent to us, is that we have to think about what we should be, okay? So in view, we have what we were, what we are now, and what we shall be. In the meantime, what should we be, right? We should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Adopted as sons. If we continue in this verse, verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Behold, what matter of love is this that the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, as in we are now already. And then John adds this statement, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Does this sound familiar to you? Let's go to John chapter 1. The prologue to John's gospel. We find Christ and we see John's opening explaining what Christ has done. Let's begin at verse 9 of John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. 
I'm going to stop there for just a second. This is the creator coming incognito. This is the God-man himself with the Father at creation, coming into the world that he created completely unnoticed, completely overlooked. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will, but of the flesh, not of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Isn't that incredible? Does it look like that verse there, 1 John 3, 1, came from a guy who wrote John 1? Does it look like he understood with, with clarity that this God-man, the creator, came in unrecognized? And so, so John says, you've been given rights to become children of God, to be born again, not of blood, not of mother or father, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So understanding that, we're told that the world's not going not gonna to know us. We're going to look different than the world. In fact, if we go to John chapter 15, we won't go there today. We'll get this one next week. We're also told that not only did the world not recognize Jesus and so forth, not recognize us, but as his gospel was unfolded, they hated him. And because they hated him, they'd hate us also. But we'll get into that later. As we understand that we've been given rights to become children of God, we need to understand that this is part of the waiting process, the already and the not yet. This is Trinitarian theology. It was asked not too terribly long ago, hey, uh, you know, where do we find the Trinity in the Bible? Somebody asked me that question. Where do we find the Trinity in the Bible? Well, we find it all over, but we certainly find it here. We find it as God's plan to adopt us as children as we await to be with him. Look at John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we're drawn to the Father through the Son. The Son draws us to the, the Father draws us to the Son through his will, right? Confusingly. See what I mean? Then we see John 14, 16, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will send you a helper. So the Father draws us to the Son. The Son asks the Father to send us a helper. And then the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 helps this make even just a bit more sense. I'm going to begin reading this at verse 20 of John 17. Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our heads hurt, but our hearts are filled with joy, right? We understand that as all of this is being unfolded, this purpose is so that the world would see Christ's love for us. He would, the, the world would see this relationship that we have with the Father only through the Son. That, that verse helps us understand with such clarity why John includes, but the world doesn't know you. Yeah, but you know what? The world does see and identify what Christ has done in us. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. We know that because his spirit abides in us and we abide in him. Verse 2 of 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, a great deal could be said about this. We read from Romans earlier today, and we talked about the redemption of our bodies. What's it going to be like when he appears and we get to see him? We know that John dealt with some of the Gnostic teaching, right? Those who believe that, that Jesus came in spirit form and not in body form. And Paul, of course, teaches us that we're going to have new bodies. So maybe what this verse is talking about is that when we see Jesus, we'll have perfected corporal bodies. Is that a true statement biblically? Yes. We'll be raised up with, with new bodies. We're also told, as we see in 1 John, that one of the reasons John writes us this Letter is so that we will know we have eternal life. So we'll be like Jesus and that we'll be also eternal, right? But will we be like him in his divinity? No, no. There are religions that teach that if we do certain things, we can be like sons of God. We can be sons of God. And in fact, we already are. But that doesn't mean that we should confuse and, under, and, and fail to understand that Christ alone is the Lamb of God, is the Son of God. We'll be like him in a way that we can understand looking at the context of the verses around it. And that is, we'll be like him in righteousness. We'll be like him in holiness. All those battles that we have with sin will be left behind. No more struggle against sin. No more struggle against the flesh. We'll be like him, holy, like he is holy. Thinking about our adoption and thinking about what we're going to be like. I have a, a friend who has adopted children who are of a different ethnicity, okay? They're one skin color, mom and dad are a different skin color. What a beautiful thing, right? And, and he had somebody remark to him one time that his kids were turning out just like him. What an interesting statement. They have some of the same ways of expressing themselves, some of the same ways of talking. And, and that's what it is for us. We were rebels. We were far off, but now we've been adopted? We should start to bear some resemblance to this father of ours, shouldn't we? And that's precisely why we're going to really focus on this last verse. Stay with me just a bit longer. There's no football game today. <laughs> verse 3 of John, 1 John chapter 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies him as he is pure. This is a Remarkable statement to think about. We've, we've looked at different texts over our months of study together that help us understand that it is Christ 
who purifies us. We saw in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, that he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. But this verse is, is hard to understand because it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is important as we understand this anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us to participate with us in the process of becoming more like Christ. Now, justification is only done through Christ. But this sanctification, this process that we're going through, involves some of our participation. This requires us to have our hope in Christ in full view every morning when we get out of bed. When we get up in the morning, are we eagerly awaiting the return of Christ? Are we thinking about what it is that is our our chief aim? What's the Westminster Catechism say? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why don't we start that today? Are we doing that now? Pray that we are. We're hoping in him and we're, we're making ourselves pure as he is pure. What a hard thing for us to understand. We understand that, that he paid the price for our purification. Titus 2 verse 14 says, Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is our call, that we understand that we produce righteousness because we abide in Christ. We abide in Christ because the Spirit resides in us. So there should be fruit of that, so that when he comes, we wouldn't shrink back in shame, but that we would confidently rejoice at his coming. We talked about how the election that we've, we've received is, communicates, the anointing that we've received communicates his sovereign election. And we like to rejoice over that, don't we? Praise God. Our salvation is certain. But the second part of that is the purposeful consecration. Do we live that part out? Do we live, a part, live out the part that we're called to be holy and set apart and different from the world that's around us? That the world that did not know Christ would see in us Christ? The third part, of course, the, the Holy Spirit. The Word of God warns us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that we can quench the Holy Spirit, and we can choose to view that anointing as a multiple choice. I'll take the sovereign election. Yes, please hold the purposeful consecration. That's not the option. I'm going to share a sermon with you this week um, from John Piper. Some of you already had a chance to listen to it this week, and John Piper makes a remarkable statement that oftentimes we can be very Calvinist in our view of justification, and very Arminian in our view of sanctification. In other words, I could take it or leave it, right? But our call here is to have our hope fixed on Christ Jesus, our hearts eagerly awaiting that we would see him again as he truly is, righteous like him. I want to end with an incredible text that helps us put a bow on what it is that we're seeing here. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. 
God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I can think of no better way to summarize this than what Paul just said right there. Since we've got these promises, church, since we've got this hope, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's our call. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you came and died in our place. We thank you that you alone being righteous, you alone having been conceived of the Holy Spirit would come and that you would voluntarily lay down your life for us. That you would grant us salvation and as part of that salvation, you would come alongside us in sanctification. God, that you would cause us to be conformed to the image of your son Jesus. God, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this process. You have given us your Holy Spirit that resides in us. God, we thank you that your Spirit warns us, that your Spirit teaches us, that your Spirit guarantees our inheritance, and that your Spirit sanctifies us. We pray that this week, as a church, we would be focused on your second coming, that we would be eagerly anticipating your arrival, and that we would live being busy in the business of getting holy. In Jesus' precious name, amen.